Remember where we left off in Daniel chapter 2. Remember it began with Nebuchadnezzar's puzzling dream. The dream was given by God to a pagan king in order to provide a sneak peek into the future. Why would God give a sneak peek into the future to a pagan king and not just any pagan king? but a polytheistic persecutor of, of, of the true people of God, a tormentor of Judah, a tor- and a destroyer of Jerusalem. Why would God give to a pagan king a roadmap into the future, an unfolding scenario? I'm going to suggest something to you. That he's going to do it because God is a God who reveals the future. In Luke chapter 21, verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, and they will fall by the edge of the sword. They'll be led captive into the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. When did the time of the Gentiles begin? When Judah, under Nebuchadnezzar, was taken captive, and then the city of Jerusalem was seized. And that was prophesied hundreds of years, even before that, by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 28, verse 49, where it says, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you don't understand, a nation with a fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly, nor show favor to the young. A fierce country. With no respecter of persons. When I read this passage again this morning, it made me think of a campaign slogan for John McCain. Just because you're wrinkled doesn't mean you're ruined. Respect the elderly. It sounded, it sounded funnier this morning. It says in Deuteronomy that they shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout the land. The reason why I even brought all of this up to you is again to remind you that in the second chapter of the book of Daniel, remember it begins with a dream, it continues with an all-night prayer meeting which results in the revelation of the dream and then praise And then the understanding of prophecy. If you've ever wanted to know God's secrets, and you most specifically want to know the secret of your life and the the plan that God has for your life, you would do well to spend some time in prayer. Praying. Praying that God will reveal to you His plan for you. God had chosen several ways to reveal himself in the past through nature, through divine revelation. But remember, in the book of Hebrews, chapter one, verse one, it says he has in these last days chosen to reveal himself in the person of Jesus Christ. We have a true and a remarkable revelation of what God is really like. And two methods that God used in the past was dreams and Revelation, And again, if we've learned anything from the last week's message, I just want to briefly recap that when we are in what seems like an impossible predicament, even under the threat of death, 
we are to trust God completely. And that's what happened in, at the beginning of chapter 2. Remember, Daniel and his friends are put into an impossible situation with the threat of death because the king has received a dream. And remember, he's ordered the wise, the magicians, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to reveal not only the content of the dream, but the interpretation of the dream. And number two, our most effective source of ability in order to understand the will of God and the plan of God also lies in our stability in prayer. Our ability and stability is linked to our willingness to hear from God and to speak to God. And as the story illustrates, great good can come when we share our prayer requests with others and we ask them to pray for us. Remember, that's what happens to Daniel. Daniel finds out that everybody's going to die unless the Lord reveals this dream. And remember, he calls his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He calls them together and they unite together in that all-night prayer meeting. And number three, when God works, he doesn't like to share his glory with anyone. There is only room for praising God and there is no room for pride in ourselves. And so the Lord both desires and demands credit where credit is due. And Daniel takes no credit. He gives all the praise, all the honor, all the glory to God. And remember the special note in Daniel chapter 2, verse 19. I want you to reread it. It said, then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. If you've ever prayed to know a secret, one I would invite you to pray is this. Lord, what is the secret of being more like Jesus? Have you ever prayed that prayer? Lord, what's the secret of being like Jesus? I'm going to give you the answer. You ready? It's by decreasing selfishness and increasing godliness. And so, Chuck Swindoll writes, When the Lord communicated to Daniel forms the backbone of biblical prophecy concerning the rise and fall of Gentile kingdoms, although many of the events set forth in the king's dream have already been fulfilled, some are yet to occur. And look what it says. We're going to join this study in verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and he said, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. I like that. I have found a man. Now, there's two ways of looking at that expression. How vain is man? 
in the ages past, Satan said, I will ascend. I will exalt myself. Pharaoh said, I will pursue. I will overtake. Ariok follows with his false. I found a man as if the discovery of Daniel and Daniel's abilities was somehow due to his great diligence and wisdom. That had nothing to do with him, did it? But yet, even in his selfishness, there's an interesting statement. I have found a man. A man. I can't help but remembering what it says in Job when, when God speaks to this fainting Job and he says, Gird up your loins like a man. Because I'm going to speak to you. If ever there was a, a time for men and women to stand for God, it's now. Men, not methods. Men, not machinery. Men, not rules and regulations. Men, not plans and programs. Men, men and women. People who will stand up like Daniel. God is looking for someone. I know this is going to shock you and surprise you. For someone just like you. Someone who will stand up for God. Someone who will honor God. Someone who will please God. Someone who will pray and praise God. And then look what it says. The king answered in, in verse 26. And said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days, your dreams and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed. Now, I, you need to understand something before we continue. Remember what I've already told you. Who is King Nebuchadnezzar? He is the despot. He is a ruler. He speaks and people live or die. He is arguably the most powerful human being on all the planet at this particular point. At his word, people live. At his word, people die. And he says, as for you, O king, thoughts came into your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. In other words, as arguably the most powerful human being on, on all of the earth, he began to envision about what life was going to be like after he was gone. Now, this is important. Because no matter how powerful you are, no matter how rich you are, no matter how substantive you are, when it's just you in the darkness... When the lights go off and you lay your head on the pillow, there is a profound sense of not immortality, but mortality. You're going to come to an end. And he knew he would come to an end. He says, while you were on your bed about 
what would come to pass after this. And he, no, he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Verse 31 The description of the image, you, O king, were watching. Pay close attention to that. You, O king, were watching. In his dream, he casts his vision out into the future. It says, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you and its form was awesome. In the old King James, it says, terrible. Now, you have to understand something. This image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, it was excellent because of all of the grandeur, the creativity, the genius that God has given to human beings. But it was also terrible or awesome because the same human beings who have a great capacity to do incredibly important things also have a great propensity to do wicked things, horrible things, evil things, rebellious things. And then it says in verse 32, this image's head was a fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. So we begin with the dream itself. And then in verse 35, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that there was no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. In the first part where it says in verse 35, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed. And it says, and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. Daniel begins to borrow from the book of Psalms, from Psalm chapter 1, where it says, the ungodly are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. It says in Psalm chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, the rise and fall of the empires and emperors isn't based on the military or financial issues, but he envisions a circumstance of the rise and fall of empires based on the moral and the spiritual capacities. The destructions of the kingdoms aren't accidents. The outworkings of God's plan and future are designed by God. And so when it says... This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron. It's a remarkable thing that he is able to interpret, the, to, to reveal the dream. So much so that when we come to verse 36 and we begin to talk about the interpretation of the dream, we sometimes lose the sense of just how amazing it is. Not only does he reveal the content of the dream, but the meaning of the dream. As a matter of fact, when it talks about 
the stone in verse 34 that is cut without hands. It's a reference to something supernatural. It's not something human. It's something beyond human. Later, the stone will break in pieces all of the kingdoms in verses 44 and 45. But it reminds me of what the psalmist wrote in Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where it says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And so the stone that comes down from heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the messianic kingdom of of Christ. The kingdom has several features. It's God's creation. It's God's kingdom in verse 44. It says, And the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. So this kingdom is infallible and indestructible. In verse 44, it says it will never be destroyed. Um, It shall not be left to other people in verse 44. It's a victorious kingdom. It's eternal in duration. It shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms. It will stand forever. It means that the kingdom is universal. And the stone that struck the image, it says later, became a great mountain in verse 35. And filled the whole earth, this small, insignificant rock becomes the permanent foundation of a perpetual kingdom. And we know what it is. It's the the kingdom of Christ. And so Daniel gives the interpretation of the revelation of the future. It says in verse 36, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. They have to understand something. Daniel gives the interpretation and the revelation and the vision portrays world events that start to sweep through future history to the time of the Messiah. Remember, I told you that from this is a concise description of the unfolding plan of God for the history of humanity. But remember, from God's perspective, all of humanity is centered around The promise of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, the life of the Messiah, the death of the Messiah, the resurrection of the Messiah. Then the ascension of the Messiah and then his return from heaven. And so in one fell swoop, the cliff notes of all of human history, sort of the Reader's Digest, condensed version of the world are, are given a sneak peek into the future. And like I said, according to Deuteronomy 32, the Lord God would would have given Israel an exalted place in the history of humanity. It was God's desire and God's plan that the children of Israel would become a superpower nation. But in their foolishness and in their selfishness and in their rebellion, they abandoned the Lord. They pursued idols. They sacrificed to the idols. They were faithless to the Lord. And so the nation gave up her destiny. 
And when she gave up her destiny because Israel wasn't faithful, because the nation Judah refused to live up to her destiny, and because she also wasn't faithful, they were led into captivity. God allowed Babylon to take them prisoner. God allowed the children of Judah and Jerusalem to be taken into captivity. But remember, he had a plan. His plan was to bring forth the Messiah so that even in their rebellion and their wickedness and their disobedience, God is still working, working, working to fulfill his plan. And that should give you a great sense of hope because in spite of your weakness, in spite of your disability, in spite of your failure, in spite of your inconsistency, in spite of your inability to be Faithful all of the time. Guess what? This is why the New Testament says even when you're unfaithful, he's faithful. This is why the New Testament says that even if your heart condemns you, he is greater than your heart. And this should give you a profound sense that as God is working, working, working to to fulfill his plans and his purposes... He is going to fulfill his plans and his purposes. Later, Jesus is going to go back to Jerusalem. He will be declared king in Jerusalem. But remember how the children of Judah and Jerusalem, even at that time, treated Jesus? They said, we won't have a king. We will have no king but Caesar. And they rejected the king. What we are reading when Daniel wrote these words was a future prophecy. That future prophecy has become a part of the pages of human history. But the prophecy continues to unfold. And so from the Lord's perspective, Babylon is the great Gentile power. And from a prophetic perspective, Nebuchadnezzar is the first great king. And now again, we, we focus on the discussion of the image. And let's go ahead and have you got the image put up there? One of the things that I want to be able to do is to talk just very briefly about these world empires. Now, the following answers present several options. And this is taken from BibleEvidence.com. And again, if you go to this particular web page, they don't say everything that I would necessarily agree with. But these are some of the images that I have found to be helpful. And he gives an outline of some of the possibilities. Is this a discussion of Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome? That's the historical interpretation, and it fits the facts of history. Some have suggested that this is a description of Babylon, Greece, Rome, and the United States. Some have suggested that this is a prophecy about Egypt and Rome and Arabia and Israel. Some have suggested that the prophecies weren't referring to earthly physical kingdoms, but spiritual kingdoms. But the the last option and option C and option B really don't fit the facts of prophecy. They don't fit the facts of history. Go ahead and give us the next one. Remember, God reveals the future. And remember, I said to you earlier, why would God reveal to a pagan king a road, if you will, a map, 
if you will, into human history. And remember what we learned last week when we began the study in chapter 2. In chapter 2, it begins in the language of Aramaic, which is the language of the Gentiles. And from chapter 2, then chapter 3, chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7, the book of Daniel was written in the Aramaic language and then translated, if you will, and, but kept in the Aramaic language, even in the Hebrew Bible. And so, revealing the content of the dream is a huge thing. Now, the interpretation may seem easy, but I, I, I need you to remember something. Don't lose sight of the weirdness. Don't lose sight of the strangeness, the utter bizarre nature of the dream. Daniel relates that a polymetallic image is a vision of Gentile kingdoms throughout the ages. And so go ahead and bring up the next one. And, and listen. In verse 39. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now, this is important because in chapter 2, we see the image and images of, a, of the future from man's perspective. In other words, who has this dream? Nebuchadnezzar. Who is Nebuchadnezzar? A polytheistic Gentile king who wants to know the future, but is he a believer by any stretch of the imagination? He is not a believer by any stretch of the imagination. So in chapter 2, we see the image and images from man's perspective. It's the unfolding of the future in part from man's perspective. And remember, from a human perspective, these are precious metals. And by the way, for those of you who are familiar with the book of, of Daniel, in chapter 7, we're going to see the image and images of the future from God's perspective ravenous creatures. And, and Mike, go ahead and, and go a couple more. Let's see what's next. And then af after that, if we can go forward one more. And then after that. Okay, we'll just pause there for just a second. Nebuchadnezzar like I said in chapter 7, it's going to be a series of wild animals. From God's perspective, as he sees the unfolding of human history, it isn't in this human perspective of glory and achievement and pride. 
Now, it could very well be that in verse 36 that Nebuchadnezzar swelled with pride on hearing the words, this is the dream, and I'm going to tell you the interpretation, verse 37. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And I know what you're thinking at this point. Ooh, that sounds good. But here's, that's the good news. What's the bad news? His bubble is about to be burst. Because even the most glorious of man's kingdoms comes to an end. And his kingdom is going to come to an end. Babylon was an amazing place, by the way. Even in its ruins, it is spectacular. It was filled with mighty monuments. It was filled with vast palaces. It was filled with gardens. And when I say gardens, I don't just mean gardens. The hanging gardens of Babylon was one of the seven wonders of the planet Earth. It was a series of gardens of a ziggurat that was that had water features that would have completely blown your mind. As a matter of fact, before his untimely demise, our friend Saddam Hussein was was entering into a conscientious effort to try and rebuild Babylon. And note the emphasis again on the first kingdom, its gold. Now, this may not, you may not care about this, but do you know what the specific atomic weight of gold is? It's 19.5. Silver, it's 10.5. Bronze, it's 8.0. Iron, it's 5.0. Iron and clay, it's 1.9. So you can imagine that the image that's given in the dream is very, very heavy at the top. And then as you march down, it gets progressively lighter. Evolution begins with mud and then works its way up. God reveals that man's future begins at the top and then works its way down. You know, when God created human beings in the Garden of Eden, he created them for friendship and for fellowship, and then they rebelled against God. As a matter of fact, it would appear that universal dominion was authorized but never achieved in Babylon. Now, you'll remember that Isaiah prophesied Babylon's demise. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 4, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased. Isaiah called Babylon the golden city, and for reason. As a matter of fact, Babylon was a golden city. When the Greek historian Herodotus went to Babylon 90 years after the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, when he got to Babylon, he was astonished. He wrote in his historical journals that he never saw a city so full of gold. That's because he'd never been to Las Vegas. But in his journal, everywhere he went, he said everything he saw was made of gold. Here's the idea. Nebuchadnezzar did exactly what God said he would do. He established an empire of gold until Belshazzar died under the judgment of God. That's going to come later in the book of Daniel. And when that happened, Gentile power would, would go from one place 
to the other. As a matter of fact, John Whitcomb writes, and I quote, After the death of Nebuchadnezzar in 562, there was a drastic deterioration of the qualities of the kingdom under the rule of his son. And, and he had a son named Evil Merodach. Isn't that a funny thing to name your child? Evil Merodach. It would be sort of like one of us naming our, our child Lord Darth Vader. You just go, man, that sounds wicked. There were two usurpers to the throne, Nered Litzar and Nabonidus, and finally his daughter's son, Belshazzar. And so, again, the kingdom of, of Babylon is going to only last three generations. And by 539 B.C., the golden qualities, he writes, John Whitcomb writes, the golden qualities of brilliant and absolute dictatorial autocracy, which characterized the 43-year reign of Nebuchadnezzar, is completely gone. And then it was at the time of his own land finally came. And Cyrus, though inferior to Nebuchadnezzar, and the authority by which he ruled, being subject to the law of the Medes and Persians, that's chapter 6 and chapter 8, was nevertheless overwhelmingly greater than the moral rotten Belteshazzar who was weighed in God's balance and found wanting. So to make a long story short, Babylon in the Bible becomes a type and a picture of a world that stands in opposition to God. Remember what the, the name itself means. Babel means confusion. And so it was in Babylon that humanity first united and confounded and confused. Its languages were confounded and, and confused. It was in Babylon that man made its first united, independent effort to declare war and independence from God. And so Babylon, when it's mentioned in the Bible, always becomes a type and a picture of a world that hates God and rebels against God. In the New Testament, the only references to Babylon are in Matthew chapter 1, verse 11, speaking of the, of the genealogy and the captivity in, in verse 12 and in verse 17, and then in Acts chapter 7, verse 43, um, and then the single mention in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. The, the term Babylon appears in Revelation where it denotes the ungodly power at the end of time. Babylon is mentioned in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, and Revelation chapter 16, verse 19, and Revelation chapter 17, verse 5, and Revelation chapter 18, verse 2. And in the book of Revelation, seven visions depict the fall of Babylon in chapter 17 through chapter 19, verse 10, and and. In the New Testament, Babylon is seen as a harlot, a prostitute in chapter 17, verse 1, and chapter 19, verse 2. It's called the abomination of the earth. In chapter 17, verse 5, we see it sitting on the beast with her name and her forehead drunk with the blood of the saints. Rome is sometimes called Babylon. Again, both Rome and Babylon represent the ungodly power. But here's the idea. The kingdoms of humanity begin in opposition and rebellion against God. 
And then in verse 39, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, even though the kingdom isn't spelled out, we know from history following Babylon are the Medes and the Persians. Babylon falls to the Medes and Persians under Cyrus, the king. We'll see that in Daniel chapter 5, verse 28, and also uh, verse 31 and chapter 6, verse 28 and chapter 8, verse 20 in a single night. They'll dam up the river. The, the, the soldiers of the Medes and the Persians will lift the gate that surround the city. They will occupy the city and they will overthrow the city in a single night. And this, of course, is fulfilled. The two arms of silver, again, are the Medes and the Persians, with the Persians being the dominant force. Now, they are inferior in the sense it says, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to, your, to yours. Please understand here, inferior doesn't mean inferior in power, because that wouldn't be true. The Medes and the Persians had the most expansive empire in the history of humanity. It extended from Mongolia all the way to the Mediterranean and all of North Africa. It was a gigantic, influential kingdom that has yet to be matched. What it means is when you saw the image of the head of gold and the breast of silver, you know what I think it means? It, it, it isn't inferior in power and influence, but it means closer, if you will, to the bottom. Closer to the earth. Because the empire was exceedingly wealthy. wealthy. By the way, the hordes of silver that have come out of the Persian Empire are unbelievable. I have some Persian, they're called siglos. They're, they're coins. I actually have coins from that period of time that have Cyrus and Darius on their coins holding a bow and holding a spear. So the kings of Persia had almost unlimited wealth. Hordes of unbelievable amounts of silver which they used to finance their expeditions. And then after that, the third kingdom is the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. And so it says, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. Now, the third kingdom corresponds to the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. He's the third king of Macedon. He is the son of Philip. He is the pupil of Aristotle. Let me put it in historical perspective for you. Socrates taught Plato. Plato taught Aristotle. Aristotle taught Alexander. And then Alexander conquered the, the known world. They had helmets and shields of brass. And so the Greek nation was a kingdom of brass, if you will. It was the dominant metal of the armies of Greece. And Alexander came to rule the world in, in a very short time. By age 29, we find him sweeping across the Hellespont, going into what is now Turkey, sweeping down to Jerusalem where the high priest brings out the scroll of Daniel and he shows Alexander chapter 2. And you know what happened when Daniel read it? Or excuse me, when, Ale when, when Alexander the Great read it? 
he left Jerusalem intact and he kept going east. He kept going east. He captured east and south. He captures Egypt. He he takes Babylon. He captures the Medes and the Persians. And he keeps pressing and pressing towards India. He comes to the Ganges River and he falls down on his knees and he weeps because there's no more worlds to conquer. And at the age of 33, he finds himself the most powerful person in the world. Later, he returns to Babylon depressed. He drinks himself into a drunken stupor and he contracts pneumonia on his deathbed. The Roman general surrounded him and asked him, who should we give the kingdom to? He said, give it to the strong. And in chapter 7, we're going to see that's exactly what Daniel predicted, that the kingdom would be divided into four and Lysimachus and Seleucus and Ptolemy and Meander would divvy up the kingdom. He died with only one heir, and that child died in childbirth. When he died, you know what they did? They took his body, and they took beeswax mixed with chips of amber, and they encased his body in beeswax, and then dragged it to North Egypt and built the entire city of of Alexandria as his monument, and his body remained preserved for hundreds of years there. And the next empire is the empire of Rome. Look what it says, and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Now, when we get to Daniel chapter 7, we'll go into great detail about the mechanics of these empires. Now, this mixture of iron and clay becomes a type and a picture, a symbol in the Bible, if you will, of strength and weakness. Whenever the word iron is mentioned in the Old Testament, it speaks of strength. When it speaks of clay, it speaks of weakness. You want to know why? Because clay is the symbol of people in the Bible. Rome declines. Excuse me. Rome comes to power after the decline of Greece. Um, Greece will get weaker and weaker and then under the dictatorship of Pompey the Great Greece will cede control of Palestine to Rome Rome will become the dominant power from Pompey will emerge this triumvirate with Julius Caesar Mark Anthony and Cassius Mark Anthony will appoint Herod to be the king of the Jews and he will build the Antonine Fortress and the Messiah will come In military organization, Rome was unequaled. There's a popular saying among historians, Israel gave us religion, the Greeks gave us culture, but it was Rome who gave us law. And after a thousand years of division and corruption and intrigue and economic failure, the Roman Empire would collapse. It's my belief that between verses 41 and 42, there's a gigantic gap of time. As a matter of fact, the reconstituted Roman Empire, look at what it says, whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be 
divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And just like the image is divided with two legs, just like the two arms, you have the Medes and the Persians, you have the two legs. The Roman Empire is divided in the 4th century between the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire. And the the divided elements will recombine. It says, Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. Some scholars have suggested that this means that there will be a revived Roman Empire. Some have suggested ten nations will emerge out of the Roman Empire. Some have suggested that the ten horns of Daniel 7 will emerge and be controlled by the man of sin, the son of perdition, the future Antichrist that's predicted in the Bible. Will it be ten nations from Europe? Or will it be ten human zones around the planet Earth? We're not told. But like I said, Whatever else it means, since clay is always indicative of people and iron of strength, I'm going to suggest something to you. Whatever else it means, it means that they're not going to cohere. They're not going to gel. They'll never come together. Let me tell you what I mean by that. There are one billion Muslims on the planet Earth. There are one billion Hindus on the planet Earth. There are one billion Christians, at least cultural Christians, maybe not born-again, Bible-believing Christians. But you know what this means? That there's this hopeless separation of worldviews. But the divided elements will recombine. That's what it says. So Babylon, 606 to 538 B.C. Medo-Persia from 538 to 331 B.C. Greece, 331 to 168 B.C. Rome, 168 B.C. As you push, push, push forward into about 476 B.C., that's when the hordes overrun Rome and the nation breaks into pieces. I think it's interesting that the nations have reemerged as independent states. Iraq, Iran, Greece, Italy. Look at verse 43. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another. Just as iron does not mix with clay. I'm going to suggest to you that governments will continue to de- decline. They'll demonstrate themselves in, in different ways. You'll have representative democracies. You'll have representative Republicans. You'll have communism. But they won't adhere to one another. The plain prophecy is this. Human beings will never, ever, ultimately get along. And in verse 44, and in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Quickly, I want to point something out. Does the stone fall on the head? Does the stone fall on the chest? Does the stone fall on the waist? Does the stone fall on the legs? 
does the stone fall on the feet? Yes, they do. Why is that important? Because the stone didn't fall when Babylon fell, and the stone didn't fall when Persia was conquered, and the stone didn't fall when Greece was defeated, and not when Rome was in ruins, but upon its feet, composed of iron and clay. The world didn't collapse after the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Certainly, the gasps of Roman Empire continued. Even when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. Even when Saul of Tarsus was converted. Even when the church began to spread. I'm going to suggest something to you. That the coming, it is the coming It is the coming of Jesus. It is the coming of Jesus. He is the stone that comes from heaven. He is the stone that will smash the nations. The stone doesn't diffuse or transform. It smashes. It breaks. It grinds. It leaves nothing. It pulverizes and then it purifies. And it smashes the image to smithereens until nothing's left, until only it is left and occupies the planet. Here's what you have to understand. In this particular image, I don't think the stone is salvation. Let me tell you why. Because smashing is not salvation. Crushing is not salvation. Destroying is not salvation. It's judgment. It's judgment. Jesus came to save. To redeem, to forgive, to reconcile. He came as the Savior, but He will come again as the judge. And look what it says in verse 45. At the end of verse 44, it says, It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it, note what it says, and it shall stand forever. The kingdom of God will stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, it's a supernatural stone, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. Look what it says. The dream is certain. The interpretation is sure. And as sure as day follows night and night follows day, the Medes and the Persians followed the Babylonians The Greeks followed the Medes and the Babylonians. The Romans followed the Greeks. And as sure as night follows day, a Savior comes. He is born. He lives. He dies. And then there's a remarkable statement. Look what it says in verse 47. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings and revealer of secrets, since you revealed this secret In verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel. Is he saved? I don't think so. He's prostrate. Jesus will do that, by the way. Jesus will make you bow. Jesus will make you bend. Or Jesus will break you. He bows. He prostrates. But I think he's still a man in need of a savior. 
The king is impressed, but he's not converted. We're going to see that in the chapters as we continue our study in the book of Daniel. Earthly rulers will sometimes pretend godliness, won't they? Have you ever voted for a person because you thought that they were a Christian? I know that I did. Fool me once. Shame on me. Fool me twice. Shame on you. Andrew Melville believed his king, James VI of Scotland, also called James I of England, was trying to usurp the authority of God. You probably know about James. He is the king who became the person who creates the King James Bible and its distribution. Andrew Melville writes, Sir, we will always humbly reverence your majesty in public. But since we have this occasion to be with your majesty in private, we must discharge our duty or else be traitors both to Christ and you. Therefore, sir, at diverse times I have told you, so now again I must tell you, there are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James, the Lord of the Commonwealth, And there is Christ Jesus, the King of the Church, whose subject James VI is, and of whose kingdom he is a king. He is not a king, not a lord, not a head. We will yield to you your place. We will give you all due obedience. But again I say, you are not the head of the church. You cannot give us that eternal life that we seek for even in this world. And you cannot deprive us of it. King Nebuchadnezzar could take life. He could give life. He could take possession. He could take away possession. He could take you and he could burn you. But you know what he couldn't do? He couldn't give you eternal life. There's really only one person who can give you life. There's only one person who can give you hope and forgiveness and life. And that's the the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what's wonderful about that? The government can make promises. They can break promises. Has that been your experience? Here's the only promise I've ever heard a politician make and keep. I will raise your taxes. And they keep their promise, don't they? The king promotes Daniel. But Daniel shares his newfound promotion with his friends. Then the king promoted Daniel and he gave him gifts and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel petitioned the king. And he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. That means he sits in the position of judgment. Sitting in the gate of the king means that you render decisions on behalf of the king. So what are the truths that we can glean? God is the God of the past, the present, and the future. Isn't that what the New Testament says? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
when you know everything, that's God. And he reveals certain things, that's prophecy. When God, who knows everything, reveals something, guess what you can do? You can take it to the bank. As surely as night follows day and day follows night, the Babylonians were followed by the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians were followed by the Greeks. The Greeks were followed by the Romans. And as human history pushes and pushes and pushes and goes further and further into the future, as night follows day and day follows night, a real Jesus will really return. Do you remember what it says in the book of Matthew chapter 24? But of that day and of that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven. But my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. How many people have prayed this prayer? Lord, reveal to me the secret of your coming. Are there 88 reasons why it will be in 88? Did I miss a reason? Is there 89 reasons why it might be in 89? Will it be in 1992? Hey, I've been at this a long time. I've heard people say 1973, 1982, 1988. Jesus said of that day and now where no one knows. But I want to know. I know. Get used to it. You're not going to. The Lord's blunt answer. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the father has put in his own authority. You know what the Gina Geraci paraphrase of that is? Shut up. It's none of your business. God knows. We're on a crash course with the end of the age. We're approaching the end of human rule as we know it. You know it's certain? Jesus will come. He will destroy the kingdoms that stand in opposition. And he will occupy an eternal throne. And since the world is temporary, we should invest in that which is eternal. We should trust Jesus as Savior. We should serve Him as Lord. And you know when you should do that? Now. Because guess what? Tomorrow may be too late. If we learn anything else from this chapter, we learn this. The people of God, the people of God are in the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus said, how could you not know that the kingdom is already here and it's within you? You see, the kingdom of God is the place where God has rule and reign, authority and righteousness. There are two worlds. The one that stands in opposition to God and the one that stands in cooperation with God. And one of the most heavily contested places on all of the universe isn't the Pleiades, it isn't Orion, it isn't the galaxies, it isn't our solar system. It lies deep within your heart. That's where the battle rages. 
of submission and obedience, of rebellion and righteousness. But there's so much more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you, Lord. Lord, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts for communion. And Lord, as you do, Lord, we we remember what the Bible says. That when Jesus gathered with his disciples on that night that he was betrayed. That he took a cup and he took bread. And he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this and eat it, all of you. It's the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant. The blood that would be shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. That same Jesus, the stone from heaven, who would occupy this world and the universe, who will be with the Hebrew youths in the fiery furnace in chapter 3. The fourth man in the fire is the same man who will come again to rule and to reign in glory. And Lord, I pray for that person who refuses and continues to resist and deny the Lordship of Jesus. Lord, I pray that even now you would move upon their heart and that you would remind them that you love them and that you're willing to forgive them. That if they will confess their sin and turn from their sin, that you are willing to forgive their sin and be their Savior. And Lord, I pray for that person who desperately, desperately, desperately needs to know that there is a certain kingdom and a certain future. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to, to that person that the same Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the one who occupies eternity, who knows the beginning from the end, knows the beginning and the middle and the end of their heart and their life and their circumstances. Lord, I pray that you would knock on the door of their heart. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't resist entrance, but rather that they would grant entrance. And that they would pray this simple prayer. Dear Jesus, I don't want to resist you anymore and I don't want to rebel against you anymore. I want you to forgive my sin and I want to turn from my sin and I want you to occupy my heart. I want to love you and serve you and know you and walk with you and I want to be a citizen in that kingdom. I want to follow you in obedience and submission. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you prayed that prayer, you're welcome to join us for communion. Knowing this, that the person who prays that prayer and means it from their heart, the Bible says that they've passed from darkness into light and from death into life. And you become a citizen of a kingdom that will never end.